Welcome to the Ready Set Crypto Podcast. Do you expect us to talk? I, you'll be shaken and stirred. Now meet your hosts, Doc and Map. Views and opinions heard on the Ready Set Crypto Podcast are not necessarily the opinion of this company nor its management. Material on this program is for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. Hello, everyone. This is Doc Severson with Episode 8 of the Ready, Set, Crypto podcast. Today, I have a special guest by the name of Andre Polgar, the author of the new book, The Age of Anomaly, Spotting Financial Storms in a Sea of Uncertainty. Andre is an author, an economist, and an online entrepreneur, runs the popular YouTube channel, One Minute Economics, where you can learn about complex economic topics in about a minute. Over the last few days, I've had a chance to dive into Andre's new book, The Age of Anomaly, and it's raised a lot of questions for me about spotting the next financial storm in time to do something about it. And I hope that we can convey some of the importance of this topic for our listeners, as well as make it relevant to the world of cryptocurrency. So hello, Andre. Welcome to the Ready, Set, Crypto podcast. We're glad you're here. Thank you very much for having me on, and thank you guys for tuning in. Great, great. So uh, you've got this book launch coming up. Why, why this topic? Why now? What is this age of anomaly? Can you help us understand what we're seeing right now? Now, personally, I, I, I've decided to focus just so much time and energy to write this book, to do it right, because the topic is very important to me. As, as someone who grew up in Eastern Europe, I had no choice. You mentioned I was an online entrepreneur as well. I had no choice but to do my own thing on the Internet. So I built businesses. I uh, was doing very well financially, got accepted to university and all that. But then a perfect storm type situation happened in my case. And one, my mom got sick. And since we don't have an amazing medical system here, I took her to get treatment abroad. And I'm, I'm sure people can relate to what it did to my net worth. And two, of course... To make matters worse, this all happened at the beginning of the 0708 global financial crisis. So needless to say, my businesses took a major hit as well. So part of my what drives me to get people to think about financial preparedness in a way that, of course, doesn't take over their lives is precisely the fact that, you know, I want as few of them as possible to go through the stuff I went through. And there's also the fact that given, uh, you know, what I'm doing with my one minute economics channel, many people kind of refer to me as the economist dude on YouTube. And with this it does come a great sense of responsibility. And I didn't really want to get left, be left with this lingering feeling of guilt for having had these concerns about the economy, but choosing not to voice them because, you know, it's never, it's never the comfortable thing to do to put yourself out there to kind of, uh, spread awareness and try to get people to tune into your message. And I, I'm a bit of an odd duck when it comes to economists because I'm definitely, uh, you know, as the type of person who kind of made a name for himself as this balanced economist from one minute economics who puts forth well-researched economic views in an entertaining way, I'm not exactly your average doom and gloomer. And this is kind of the one of the main things I tell to people. When someone like myself starts being concerned, I think it makes sense to at least uh, listen to some of the arguments. So, Andre, the, the point to your new book is to help people identify and prepare for the next crisis. Uh, would that be a good summation of it? 
Well, uh, we, we can see it in a bi-dimensional way. So the two dimensions in my book are, of course, one. It's a huge book, like 400 plus pages. And I take people through economic history, starting with the tulip mania and moving on to, you know, your dot-com bubble, your Great Recession, or even lesser known modern uh, case studies like the short domain mania of 2015 to 2016. I, I think I'm the only economist who even studied that one. And I do all of these things because, yeah, my number one dimension of the book is this, helping people increase the likelihood of spotting the next financial crisis as early on as possible by kind of enabling them to have the right balance between a firm grasp on economic history, which is going to give them some excellent historic context, which coupled with a willingness to keep track of current events, you're going to basically, unlike the average consumer, you're not going to look at the news as if you're watching a movie. And instead, you're going to say, wait a second, this particular event, there's a parallel that can be drawn, something similar happened 100 years ago, and here's what happened. Then something similar happened also 200 ago, 200 years ago, and it led to that. So the first dimension of my book is, of course, about just that. But dimension number two is kind of the exact opposite, because it revolves around humility, the humility it takes to realize that no matter how hard you prepare, the next financial crisis might still catch you off guard. So I dedicate in the second half of my book just as much time and energy to helping people become more financially resilient in general so as to better withstand anything life throws at them. Whether it's a financial crisis, whether it's a personal uh, crisis like the one I dealt uh, with Many of my tips, most of them actually, in the second part of my book, they don't have an expiration date. So essentially, by internalizing these principles, you're going to be able to take advantage of the advice in question forever. You know, it was kind of amazing to, to read the first half of your book was almost like a history lesson that yep. repeats over and over again. It's almost like every crisis that you talked about uh, just had a different name to them, but the basic causes of them all had very similar, well, I, I guess very I, similar, very kickoff metrics that, that really uh, precipitated the, the crisis. Most definitely. And history might not necessarily repeat itself, as in the manifestations are not 100% identical, but it most definitely rhymes. And I did my best in the first uh, part of the book to give people a genuinely comprehensive list of completely different case studies, whether we're talking about tulips or railway stocks in the uh, United Kingdom in the 1800s or bonds issued by newly created states in South America or tech stocks or real estate or any. It's important to have this big picture perspective because you'll notice, as you've pointed out, that yes, it's definitely very easy to draw parallels, to find common denominators, and to realize that yes, us humans are frequently guilty of the exact same mistakes, whether it's the fact that you know we uh, invest in a manic depressive manner uh, fueled by the two main emotions that dictate our behavior when there's financial incentive involved, fear and greed, or better said, greed and fear, whether we're talking about how we hop on bandwagons and invest in the hottest assets, not because we care about them, not because we understand them, but just because we see everyone else making money and we want a piece of the action. So th there are just so many parallels to be drawn that I believe this perspective on history is going to give people a solid foundation of knowledge. And with that knowledge is going to come clarity. And it's precisely clarity that essentially enables you to do what, you know, Warren Buffett says it's a bit cliche, but it makes sense. You know, being fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. 
there's just no way to go around it. I did a lot of research for this book, but I did my best to kind of present these things just like I do on YouTube in an entertaining way because I don't want to, when people read The Age of Anomaly, to feel as though this arrogant economist is talking down to them from his ivory tower. I just want them to feel like, kind of like we're having this conversation right now. I want them to feel that a friend is talking to them who just so happens to be good at economics. And that's pretty much been my goal. That's, that definitely comes out in, in, the, in the book. Uh, you know, one thing uh, that I, I noticed, I, perhaps we didn't get a chance to really cover cryptocurrency, and we'll, we'll definitely end today's interview on cryptocurrency and kind of where that's going and how people can hedge themselves against that. But um, didn't we see exactly the same type of situation hit cryptocurrency at the end of 2017? Oh, most definitely. Like, um, I'm a hands-on economist. I like to put a good balance between book smarts and street smarts on the table. So when it comes to crypto, I don't just study the phenomenon. I trade crypto on 17 exchanges, occasionally on leverage. I did some arbitrage in South Korea. So I, I do keep uh, my ear to the ground, so to speak. And the number one thing I tell people in this book as well is... Crypto, the crypto space is amazing. Like, for example, uh, I have a big promo week that's going to go on while you're publishing this, when you're going to publish uh, this material. And I actually have a huge contest where I reward people with one Bitcoin, which is the number one prize and a bunch of other crypto prizes, including hardware wallets. So I am big on crypto. But if you want to invest in crypto, do it right. Know what you're getting yourself into and understand the nature of price action when it comes to crypto. Because, yeah, so many people have bought early, uh, late in 2017, and then they were shocked that the price went from uh, 20K all the way to uh, a bit over under 6K. And they were shocked. Why exactly? They were shocked because Bitcoin is doing what Bitcoin has been doing all along. Like, as a bit of an experiment, go to YouTube, search for 2011 Mount Gosh, Mount Gox Bitcoin crash, and you will see how back then, I think it was July of 2011, the price went from a buck to famously $31, then collapsed and stabilized at $2, but before stabilizing at two bucks, it traded for a brief period for one cent on Mount Gox, and there's actual footage. Some guy filmed it and posted it on YouTube. So if you want to crash, that's a crash. The same way we had an aggressive boom and bust cycle that culminated in 2013, as we know. Then we had the price action of late 2017. And again, crypto is an amazing and potentially life-defining opportunity. But if you're going to do it, you had better know what you're getting yourself into, and you had better make sure you have the stomach for it. You know, it's funny because one thing I do uh, tell our subscribers is over and over again is that the very best trades that you will make will be the ones that feel the worst to take. And conversely, the trades that will typically not work out very well for you are the ones where it seems like a no-brainer, like, a well, it's just, hey, this, this is a... A guaranteed trade, this is, of course, going to work out just perfectly. Yeah, and what what I find is that people that enter those types of trades usually do not enter any kind of a stop or have no exit in mind for them because of that. <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting that you said this because I actually do have one 12.5x leverage position uh, go active now. It's a long position on Bitcoin that I took at just a pinch under 6,000 uh, as, as an average between two orders. And you're actually right, I don't have a stop loss for it. So I've been hanging on to that leverage long since slightly under 6,000 and I still have it. And you're right, you know, it was definitely such an opportunity, you know, seeing that everyone and his dog went from went to being completely bearish on crypto, seeing tutorials on CNBC on how to short Bitcoin and so on. So yeah, you're definitely correct that a lot of well, there's a big difference if you're trading something that is a limited risk, like a derivative, 
versus actually trading the spot with no no sense of stop or no sense of exit to that. There's a big difference there. Yeah. So you're you're good to go. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, of course, this is just an anecdote, and I do tell people, even in my book, yeah, I, I actively trade the assets I'm studying, but it's not for everyone. So just, you know, throwing that out there as well. Okay, Andre, I have a couple of questions based on uh, your book. One of, in one of the chapters, you say that we should stay tuned into the news, that we not put our head in the sand. Uh, you do educate us that ostriches actually don't put their head in the sand, but that's kind of a good analogy. Yeah, but we do. Exactly. But we do the same thing. This is where I have some conflict, because what I found is that most financial news is written as either clickbait or by some young intern that's being asked to summarize the events of the day, and nobody really cares what they write as long as they do write something. So it's really kind of chum for the masses, and the market often moves opposite to the lean of the news simply because efficient markets have already discounted that news into there. You have hit the nail on the head. You have hit the nail on the head with that. Where, where do we go from this? Because it's like, I, I want to stay tuned into the news, but what I found is that my performance actually gets worse if I follow what's going on in the news. It's ultimately all on you to decide what you get out of it. Like, for example, I stay tuned in the news. And indeed, when it comes to financial networks in the Bitcoin trade I've mentioned, I've used them as a contrarian indicator. And the same way, frequently, of course, it, 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 you do sometimes feel the need to wash your hands after watching dumbed down version of, you know, mainstream news. And th that's understandable. But at the very least, in the spirit of gauging market sentiment, in the very least, you know, uh, in, in the with the intention of tapping into the agenda of one network or another, there's just, I, I think there is uh, quite a bit of value associated in staying on top of news on, you know, even of course, I definitely am completely against news as it's consumed by the average person, just, you know, something that dumbs you down and manipulates you. Of course not. I actually have a robust section in the book precisely about how to make the most out of alternative media news sources and how to make the most out of mainstream media news sources. But that being said, of course, while it is on you to decide how you extract value and what type of value you extract from mainstream media news, I think it deserves to play uh, at least a bit of a role in your content consumption uh, routine, even if only as a contrarian indicator. Yeah, we got to find some news that we, we trust, which is difficult these days. So another thing you say is to don't go it alone. So don't don't be isolated in terms of your sources. So don't go it alone. Reach out and work with other people. But how do you team up with other people and not fall victim to things like groupthink or confirmation bias? Ray, Ray Dalio's recent book had some great examples. Uh, have you heard of it, Principles by Ray Dalio? Yeah, yeah. I actually went through his work quite a while ago. It was... He was, uh, he was uh, the CEO of Bri uh, was it Bridgewater. He created models that told him what to do and when to do it that he built before the emotional moves, and that's why he did so well through the boom and bust cycles. Is, is there a way that we can apply some of this if we work with others without getting tainted by others? Yeah, well, of course, when you when you uh, deal with other humans, you're going to get in touch with human nature, and that's not always the most pleasant thing in the world. But still, studies after studies do show that human interaction is directly correlated to levels of happiness. So kind of in the book, that was what I was trying to get at. In other words, it's good to include other people in your plans. Now, of course, this doesn't mean putting yourself in an extremely vulnerable position by trusting people when you shouldn't be trusting people. But there is there is a ton of uh, 
there are a ton of benefits involved when it comes to social resilience as well. Because at the end of the day, you know, we are pack animals. We do derive uh, quite a bit of value from human interaction. So once again, just like with our previous discussion, it makes sense to include this in the equation. But as always, and of course, once again, we're back to history with the many things it teaches us about human nature. As always, it's on you to proceed with caution. Okay, great. Now, we've had this constant drumbeat of doom and gloom really since the the bottom of the uh the the bottom of the markets which was about nine years ago so guys like mark F- uh, faber nassim taleb james rickards death of money yeah it's just like every day you read in the mainstream media like this is it this is the top this is the end but i've been reading these types of articles for years now and so we become somewhat numb to them exactly so can you give us Give us some advice on how we can sort out the the wheat from the chaff here. That's exactly one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to people who push the idea of financial resilience because they go about it in a completely wrong manner. Like, in, you know, what I do compared to other people is that I don't try to push my predictions. I don't try to predict even. Instead, I do the exact opposite. I try to embrace my competence when it comes to predicting the future so as to have the humility it takes to put together a strategy that enables me to land on my feet in as many scenarios as possible. The problem I have with people, of course, like Peter Schiff, like Mike Maloney, like Mark Faber, you've mentioned a few, is precisely that uh, their activity delegitimizes the idea of financial preparedness because as you've very correctly pointed out, the average person is like, hey, look at Peter Schiff. He said the sky is falling and it's all going to collapse and buy gold and he said that and in, you know, he told people to buy silver in uh, gold and silver in 2011, and look, silver was uh, 50 bucks, and look at it now, and so on and so forth. It's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake because the average person then ends up considering that the very idea of preparing yourself for a financial crisis and and paying attention to that dimension of your life, they end up believing that th- this entire idea is a joke. So, as a general rule. And I I mentioned this in the book as well. Whenever you have a guru who claims he has a working crystal ball, fortunately, you have this immense rabbit hole that is the internet at your disposal. So just look up that person's name. You're going to come across more than a few predictions. Grab a pen, grab a piece of paper. I've done this many times. And try to keep track of what he or she said. And most, more likely than not, you're going to be underwhelmed. And the key here in my opinion at least, is trying to stay away from people who brand themselves as gurus. This is a thing I come across very, it's it's a common thing as an economist. You know, you always have these flavor of the month economists who claim, oh, I have this perfect system or I have it all figured out or I know exactly when the next financial crisis is going to start. So to counterbalance that, I try to brand myself as the guy who's always here. I'm like, look, I have valid reasons to be concerned about the economy. One, two, three, four. I articulate them in my book. I make it clear why I'm concerned, what people need to do. But I do it in a way that's not alarmist. I don't know exactly when disaster is going to strike and how these things are going to materialize. What I do know is that allocating at least a a little bit of time and effort towards financial preparedness at this stage, like when we're having this conversation, when people are not panicking left and right, the risk-to-reward ratio is just asymmetrically in your favor. So I'm the guy who gives you $1 bulletproof fire insurance, you know. It's amazing. It's an amazing deal. 
if your house doesn't burn down, it doesn't change the fact that I gave you very good insurance. And that's what I try to do. I try to help people internalize certain principles, make them a part of who they are and, and, and kind of let them become second nature. And when disaster strikes, you're at least going to be well equipped to withstand whatever happens. I'm not telling people to make this their number one priority. Just like with my channel, you know, I explain the importance of making economic decisions, but I also apply the proper dosage. And that's what I hope I've achieved with this book, you know, giving people kind of like this comprehensive from A to Z type guide, which says, here's what you need to do in the proper dose. This doesn't have to take over your life. I get it. You have a family, you have a job, you have other things going on than just preparing for the next financial crisis. So by having, you know, this little piece of information that I help them with, especially since many of the uh, tips I provide in the book, once again, they don't have an expiration date. I think I'm putting a good balance on the table between making people aware of how important it is to be prepared, but not venturing into doom and gloom territory. Yeah, I would agree with that, because the advice that you do give in this book, based on your historical examples, would have been just as applicable 500 years ago for all the, the crises that you talk about. So let's, let's circle back to crypto now. Let's, let's finish out our, our chat today by talking about crypto. Where does crypto fit into this? And would crypto be potentially a safe harbor if we do have a financial crisis that hits the rest of the quote-unquote regular financial world? I have two important words of advice. Uh, for people who are into crypto. Number one, be prepared for crypto to have a reaction after an exogenous shock like a market crash, similar to that of precious metals after 0708. In other words, don't be surprised if initially the market acts in a negative manner, because sometimes it does take time until the market digests certain news, so be sure you're not shaken out. And two, just as importantly, after the next financial crisis starts, we might no longer be able to refer to crypto in a way that encompasses everything. And in fact, it may very well happen that the next crash is going to be a good opportunity for a bit of a big divergence situation to take place. In other words, you're going to have the best of the best in terms of cryptocurrencies, projects that definitely deserve to exist, that put something meaningful on the table. Those are going to outperform and act as the hedge many people have adopted them as being. Whereas when it comes to your average pump and dump altcoin, probably not so. Like if people see that everyone, you know, people are losing jobs left and right, when they see that companies are going out of business, when they see that banks are at risk of closing, maybe the average person will say, okay, it might make sense to own some Bitcoin. However, to believe that people are going to see everything around them crashing and then say something like, yeah, I think I should spend all my money on Dentacoin. That's probably not the smartest idea in the world. So those two would, me, would be my main tips for people who are into crypto. I do believe that the best of the best in terms of cryptocurrencies are indeed going to act as a significantly effective hedge against uncertainty, and especially uncertainty that has to do with the banking system and the monetary system. But be very careful what you invest in, because now more than ever, I would venture to say stuff that has worked in 2017 and very early 2018 might no longer work. So you're going to have to put in more work. You're going to have to do proper due diligence and think not twice, but three times before investing in shady pump and dump type projects from now on. 
putting all your portfolio into Dogecoin may not be your salvation. It might not yet. It might not. <laughs> it might not be your salvation. Okay, so, you know, the one thing I did notice in the 08 crisis is that everything went down. There was no safe harbor. There was no place to go. There was yep. no place to run and hide if you were looking at a, a long delta asset that, you know, only makes money on the upside. Yeah, this is what people need to understand because it, it, it's the stage in, you know, at that stage where many get shaken out. People who would have otherwise had a good strategy and people who otherwise chose decent assets to hedge, but that initial reaction shook them out of, out of the market, basically. And I would not be the least bit surprised if something similar were to happen to uh, the world of crypto. So just because the best of the best cryptocurrencies are very well positioned to act as a good hedge against certain things, it doesn't mean that when the events in question, un question unfold, the market will automatically reward you for making the right decision. It, on the contrary, expect the market to move in the, you know, in the direction of maximum pain for all parties involved and kind of internalize this thing as well and be prepared for that outcome. Oh, I love that. that that's uh, something I refer to as the principle of maximum adversity. Markets yep. will always find that, that point. That seems to make sense, though. So what you're saying is there may be initially some correlation when the overall financial system starts to melt down. So crypto may, caught, may catch a little bit of, of that downside initially. But what you're saying is that as things start to shake out, perhaps you'll see a differential there. The coins that deserve to have value, the, the projects that deserve to have value may end up being something that gets accumulated right then and there. Exactly, exactly. I do believe that if you make the right choices and are, you know, uh, have a good enough stomach not to be shaken out by that, you know, maximum pain dimension, then yeah, I believe you're going to be very satisfied. And I definitely believe there is room for crypto in each and every portfolio. Okay, fantastic. Well, Andre, I appreciate you spending some time with us here today. Uh, you've been very generous with that. I wish you all the best in your book launch that's happening this week. And I think I think you have some more some more discussions to go yet today. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Speaking of book lounge, by the way, if you guys found it interesting enough to purchase, I'm practically giving it away this week. I'm having a big promo push to get as high on the charts as possible. So when this goes out, if you buy it until Sunday, I am going to sell it for just 99 cents. It's kind of like giving it away for free, but you know, kind of making it so that people have some skin in the game, even if it's only symbolically giving me that dollar. And also, if you buy this week, head over to One Merit Economics, and you're going to find info about my contest. I'm going to basically reward people for spreading the word about my book. You can win a Bitcoin, tons of like crypto-oriented prizes. And yeah, even with the fact that there are many uncertainties all around us, it's not a funeral. So I do want people to remain optimistic, because at the end of the day, being depressed and feeling and full-out panic mode is not going to do anyone any good. Yeah, that's so true. People have been looking over their shoulders for the last 10 years, and perhaps uh, your book will allow us a way to look forward instead of backwards. Exactly. Thank you very much, Andre, for your time today. Uh, that is it for Ready, Set, Crypto Podcast 8. Thanks for tuning in today. If you're interested in picking up Andre's book, The Age of Anomaly, we have a handy link for you at readysetcrypto.com slash offer. And you can read more about Andre's contest at oneminuteeconomics.com. Thanks for listening. 
and we'll see you in the next podcast.